Jeremy. What's up? Are there any foods that you're allergic to? I'm allergic to stopping eating when I'm eating lots of food. <laughs> it's just called being a human being that requires yeah. nutrients. <laughs> no, the answer, the direct answer to your question is no, I'm not allergic to any food. Yeah, thankfully, as far as I know, me neither. But gosh, I mean, so many people in my life, including my husband, and I have my niece has some pretty severe food allergies that I, I just... It just breaks my heart. I feel like it makes life so difficult for people. And and I know that, you know, food allergies are super duper common. But, you know, and according to the American College of Asthma and Immunology and the CDC, about four to six percent of kids and about four percent of adults are affected by food allergies. The responses can range from like mild to severe and life threatening. Um, and then food allergy symptoms are most common in babies and children but they can appear at any age. Um, you can even develop an allergy to foods that you've eaten for years with no problems before, which is kind of terrifying. I always feel like, what's the thing that's going to upset my tummy next? Um, so, but as we learned in our previous episode about celiac disease with Dr. Alessio Fasano, which was amazing, um, when we restrict people's diets, it can be super stressful and isolating situation for them. Um, Jeremy, do you remember when Dr. Fasano's, his anecdote about he had the you know, the cohort of young kids with celiac disease. And when he asked them to draw themselves having dinner with their family and the one kid drew like a super long, which he called Putin style <laughs> table with all of his family having a nice meal together on one end. And then the kid himself isolated on the other end eating alone. I don't know. That's that stuck with me and, and broke my heart. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. And also, doesn't it kind of feel like food allergies are more common now? I I'm not saying they are or aren't because I don't know the data. Don't don't yeah. quote me. But well, I just kind of feel like when I, <laughs> but I just feel like when I was younger, I just don't feel like there was so much talk about food allergies. And so that means either A, they're more common now yeah. or B, we're talking about them more now, which is probably a good thing for people who have them. Um, but yeah, I would imagine that it's incredibly isolating. I know that I can't send my daughter to camp with a peanut butter or peanut anything. Um, we have to use sunflower. Uh, um, spread for yeah. any like peanut butter sandwich so you know and i don't i think when i was in elementary school it, you know nobody told us anything about foods it was like yeah just make sure they have something that they can eat well even i feel like when we were growing up you know, in elementary school like when it was your birthday you could you could bring in treats from home that you and your parents made and it's like nope <laughs> not anymore and probably for very good reason so yeah like how can we support people with food allergies can we treat these food allergies are they actually more prevalent now than they have been historically, or are we just more aware of them? So, thankfully, meaningful research exists to provide helpful data on how to manage food allergies. And yay, we have our friend and renowned expert in the field of allergy and immunology to help us understand more. So, hold on to your EpiPens, folks. Let's learn about food allergies. <laughs> Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right. Welcome. And welcome back to our guest, Dr. Dave Stukas. Dr. Stukas or Dr. Dave. 
is a clinical professor of pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He's also the director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center. He is very active on social media at, at AllergyKidsDoc on Twitter and Instagram. We remember Dr. Stukas from his awesome episode about seasonal allergies. Yay, Dave. For those who may not remember, can you, first of all, hi, welcome back. We love you. So glad to have you again. Give us like a quick elevator, uh, your origin story again. How did you choose a career in allergy? Yeah, oh, hi. It's nice to see you. <laughs> Thanks for having hi. me back. It, it's, it's, this is going to be a fun conversation, and this is ah. one that's uh, you know, near and dear to my heart. Um, so yeah, I became interested in allergy uh, during my pediatric residency. Uh, and it actually started with um, all of the children who kept getting admitted to the hospital for asthma uh, yeah. the first autumn of my intern year. And I, I kept thinking, this is so common. And yet, why are all these kids ending up in the hospital? We have great treatments for it and things like that. And we learned at that point, this was, I don't know, oh my gosh, 20 years ago, that the heterogeneity of asthma. So it's not just one condition. It's like asthmas. And there's different types and phenotypes and endotypes and parts of the immune system and things like that. And then I realized throughout my career, maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, that where we were with asthma 20 years ago is where we are with food allergy now. Mm. And we really are at a place where we're better understanding a very individualized approach uh, to both diagnosis as well as management and risk and things we're going to talk about today. So that's my new love. And that's really all that I focus on clinically and from a research standpoint at this point in my career. Dave, you're a pro's pro when it comes to podcasting, because it seems every time you come on here, you give us a new topic that we're going to have to bring you back on in yes. the future. So well, well done. Uh, uh, golf clap in the background here. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put little put little nuggets out there and it's up to you to you know pick them up or not. I just <laughs> I, I, I just love the concept of an episode that's called the asthmas. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> it's it's like a, a soap opera, like the asthmas, and then, you know, like everybody turns around dramatically <laughs> or like a Kardashians kind of situation. Yeah, I love it. All right. I'll uh, I'll put that into pre-production. Yeah. So um, next week, same time next week, then? Same time next week, man. We'll just make this a running a running appointment. Just Sunday. Allergy it's fellowship. Yeah, right, exactly. All right. Well, let's get down to brass tacks. Um, Dr. Dave, what, what are food allergies? Can you, what, how do you explain them to people? Yeah, this is the perfect place to start. And every single family that comes to our center, I start out our, our visit the same way. And I say, I'd like to really clarify the diagnosis and very important differences between what's an allergy versus intolerance and sensitivity and things like that. So allergies are kind of easy. Uh, because it's cause and effect. Allergies are caused by the immune system. So when you have a food allergy, you form an abnormal immune response towards that food, most traditionally through something called immunoglobulin E or IgE. Therefore, if you have this IgE against the food and you're allergic, every single time you eat that food, no matter what form, your body says you don't belong here. So you should have reproducible symptoms, typically within minutes of eating it, rarely longer than one to two hours later. And this can be any combination of big red itchy hives. You can have swelling of the face or extremities, nausea and vomiting. You can have coughing, wheezing. Sometimes you just get this acute onset, severe nasal congestion, or what we call anaphylaxis, which is a combination of any of those things. Uh, and for some people, these can be actually life-threatening reactions. So if you're concerned about having a food allergy, the best place to start is what happens when you eat the food. Because if you're eating a food and you're not having those sorts of symptoms every time you eat it, it's very unlikely that you're actually allergic to it. That was incredibly condensed. So, so Dave, am I am I incorrect to say if you have too much IgE to a certain certain food allergen, you shouldn't IgE eat it? Wow, 
Okay. Uh, um, You've gotten to a dark place. It's, 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 I rarely am found speechless, but congratulations. <laughs> you pulled it off. And just in case yeah. you needed some, you know, some material for social media. I know that you're big on social media and you're a disruptor. So that seems like a very disruptive statement. Yes, it does. <laughs> Julie, when you can silence a pediatrician, I think that you that's pretty good. When the childless woman in the room is making the best dad jokes, I'm just, maybe you guys should, you know, up your game. That's all I'm out saying. Of, out of practice. Unbelievable. <laughs> you, 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 say, you say best. We say, eh. But, you know. <laughs> right. it's, it's all relative. <laughs> so um, we'll get these food allergies, yeah. Dave. So, like, is it something where, like, I the first time I should be exposed to it, I should just know if I'm allergic or, you know, like, how do I know? Yeah, huge misconceptions in this area. And there's mm. a lot of parents that are... <laughs> You know, they actually drive to the parking lot of emergency departments the first time they feed their children peanut because they think oh. that they're going to have this catastrophic life-threatening Scary. reaction. Yeah, we've really done a great job of just scaring the hell out of parents and feeding their kids. And we'll talk more about you know, how that, that was all wrong and that advice was wrong. Yeah, so typically um, you can experience a reaction the first time you eat it, but you, you traditionally have to be exposed to it in order to become sensitized. So we typically see food allergies present during infancy or early childhood. Uh, and they could have eaten it in small amounts, at, or they could have been exposed through their skin. There's this um, dual allergen exposure hypothesis, mm. especially in kids with eczema, where they have a, uh, an altered skin barrier. So you get exposed to the immune, ce- the immune cells in the skin, you develop yeah. this you know, IgE response, then you eat it and you have a reaction. Whereas if you actually just eat the food, then you become tolerant to it. But we also know that some adults can actually develop new food allergies to foods they've eaten their whole lives. And talk about a scary proposition because we don't really understand why that happens or who it happens to. Thankfully, it's relatively rare, um, but that can occur as well. Which foods are the major culprits that you see a lot, Dr. Dave? And and secondary question after that is, do we know why? Oh, those foods? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah. there, are, there are eight uh, foods that account for more than 90% of all food allergy reactions. And that would be cow's milk, egg, wheat, soy, Peanuts, tree nuts, which are very different, finned fish, and shellfish. Sesame is probably number nine. Yes, you can develop food allergies to any food, but it's much, much less likely when we talk about things like grains, fruits, and vegetables, and things like that. So those are the major players as to why those are the ones. We don't really know because it's interesting that there are you know different prevalence of, of food allergies across the world. And there are some societies that you know use a lot of peanut early on. Uh, and they have very low rates of peanut allergy. Uh, this is, in fact, what led to you know the the new guidance to introduce food allergens early in life, because uh, there's places like Israel where they you know all the infants there they chew on this um, snack called bomba, which is like a, a Cheeto made out of peanut. So they've been exposed to it from early in infancy. So that's a great question. That we don't have good answers to. I huh. want to know why I've never had one of those Cheetos made out of peanuts. I just sounds like, amazing. <laughs> it does. It sounds really good. Um, when. I forget my question. Go ahead, Julie. It's fine. I was going to say, Jeremy. I was still saying the Cheeto in my head that was made out of peanuts. At the end, Jeremy, I'm going to quiz you on those eight uh, plus nine uh, allergens. You have to know all of them. It's like a concussion test. You have to, (laughs) you have to know them all. (laughs) Dave rattled them off like, like he does this every single day. I mean, come on. Well, Dave, I wanted to ask you about, what about like cross-reactivity? So like a shrimp allergy possibly causing like a cross-reaction with like lobster or crab. Like do you, what are the common ones? Does that exist? Um, If so, uh, can you like walk me through a couple uh, common scenarios? 
Yeah, I love that question for two big reasons. One is, uh, yes, you can have cross-reactivity that can make somebody very sick from eating the same food. And two, that's a leading cause of false positive testing that we get as well. So in regards to cross-reactivity from eating it, yes. So shellfish or crustaceans are highly cross-reactive. Uh, there's few, very few individuals that are allergic to shrimp, but then can eat crab and lobster. Typically, they need to avoid all of those. It's a little less um, stringent when it comes to finned fish, so things like mm. salmon and cod and tuna. Uh, we're, we're starting to learn more about that. There are some people that may only have reactions to like you know fish with white meat as opposed to that with pink meat, things like mm. that. Uh, tree nuts tend to cross-react. We see a lot of people that are allergic to cashews have reactions to pistachios. Same with walnuts and pecans. They, go, they kind of go hand in hand as well. Um, and then um, that, those are the main ones that we typically see when it comes to actually cross-reactivity. You mentioned testing, um, which I would imagine that maybe some people come in and it's pretty obvious. Like uh, I had, you know, I fed my child this and they immediately reacted and I know exactly what it was. But I would also imagine based on both your description of cross-reactivity and also the amount of foods that we're feeding our children that there's sometimes it comes in, you're like, you're not sure really what it is. So how do you guys go ahead and die to diagnose a food allergy on people? Yeah, the most important test is the history. So uh, any you know board certified allergist will hopefully spend the first portion of the visit really going through. And I think of it like Mad Libs. Do you remember Mad Libs where you have to pick yeah, you know different words and fill it in? So the parents have to come to me with a good story and they have to say, when my child ate this food, which is a recognized cause of allergy, within this period of time, typically within minutes, really long, one to two hours later, they develop these symptoms. And it's happened every time they've eaten that food. Very few parents will continue to feed a food that their child is allergic to to their child because it's going to make them sick. So we start by the history. Uh, sometimes they come and they say when they eat strawberries four days later, they have headaches. I believe you 100%. Uh, that's probably not causal and it's definitely not due to an allergy. Whereas if they say I fed them scrambled eggs within 15 minutes, they break out in hives over their body. Yes, that's a very consistent story for food allergy. So the history guides the testing. And then we really have three ways of testing. Uh, we have something called a skin prick or scratch test that we can do in the office. We have blood testing where we can measure levels of the IgE. And then the really the best test is the oral food challenge, which is something that our center does about a thousand of, of a year because that really can help clarify who's allergic and who's not. Now, the skin tests and blood tests are very similar, but they were never designed to be screening tests. And there's a lot of these panels that are heavily marketed towards primary care physicians about, wouldn't it be great if you could just tell your patient everything they're allergic to from one drop of blood? Well, that would be great, except they don't work that way because uh, we get very high rates of false positives on testing. Uh, about 40% of all kids will have detectable IgE to things like milk, egg, shrimp, and peanuts, but only 5% are actually allergic. So if we go by testing alone, we're going to overdiagnose the vast majority of people with allergies that actually don't have. And we can get into some of the specifics about why, but I just wanted to kind of lay that out there for now. What about some of the over-the-counter tests that I've seen, like on the end aisle display at Target about that you can just get them at the pharmacy? Are they accurate? What should I do with that information? Should I even, should I even buy that thing? It's too expensive. I haven't bought it. Yeah, <laughs> no. Shell out the money. <laughs> no, you should not buy it. And, and this is, it's, it's, it really goes down to just these tests aren't screening tests. You can't just do yeah. the test to figure out what you're allergic to. And every single one of those at-home tests tells the exact same thing. And they will say, we're not diagnosing with anything. If you get an elevated result, you have to go see an allergist. So why not just skip that and go see the allergist in the first place? Save yourself the money. Save yourself the headache of unnecessary elimination. Yeah. I'd love for you to actually go into that a little bit about like why so many of us have high levels of IgE, but we're not all allergic. Yeah. It, you know, uh, IgE is an imperfect test. Um, a lot of times there's cross-reactivity. So for people with environmental allergies... Uh, say you're allergic to cockroaches, oftentimes you'll have false positive testing to shellfish like shrimp on your testing because mm -hmm. they look very similar from an antigen standpoint. Same with dust mites. 
We know that birch tree pollen is a major source of springtime itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, runny nose. We talked about that in the last episode. Mm -hmm. And if you measure peanut IgE in everybody who's allergic to birch trees, you're going to find a lot of them are producing IgE to peanut. They're not actually allergic to peanut. It's a it's a uh, an error on the test because it actually thinks it's, it's detecting birch tree. Same thing with you know people with grass allergy and, and allergy to weeds, things that grow in the ground. If you're testing for fruits and vegetables that come from the ground, you're going to see some false positives on testing. Uh, so there's many reasons why the tests are just very inaccurate. But they are good when used properly. So we have to interpret them in the proper manner, which always goes back to the pre-test probability. Why are we doing the tests in the first place? What actually happens when you eat the food? Yeah. So walk us through, I know you touched on this um, already a bit, but I just wanted to clarify, how do the symptoms usually present? I know you mentioned that there's a temporal relationship that really needs to be there for you to be concerned about it, this being a true allergy to this thing, to this food. Um and like, what kind of responses do you see in people? It can be relatively mild. So sometimes people just get sort of an upset stomach or they get some mild hives that are self-resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can be more severe and people can, you know, end up in the emergency room because they have, um, you know, terrible vomiting, they have difficulty breathing or they pass out. Um, so this can cause very severe and potentially life-threatening reactions. So there's, a, there's sort of a range that people can experience. There's sort of a misconception that's floated around for decades that says that, you know, allergies can get worse every time you eat the food. Mm. That's not actually 100% accurate. What we've learned is that there are multiple different cofactors that can augment the severity of the reaction. So exercise is a huge one. Uh, and I have, you know, plenty of patients that, you know, if they accidentally eat their allergen, they kind of get some mild hives. They don't feel mm-hmm. well. If they do that at soccer practice, they have full-blown anaphylaxis. So exercise can make symptoms worse. Increased body temperature, viral illnesses, uh, women who are on their menstrual cycle, if you're taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, uh, stress can do it. The amount of allergen that you eat can do it. Mm-hmm. Alcohol can potentiate the response. And that's just sort of, you know, a, a short glimpse as to the many factors that can influence that. That's really interesting. I did not even think about the connection between being exposed to your your allergen that you have a, a response to and having it worsen if you went out and played pickleball. What if you ate pickles and you were <laughs> allergic so to them and then you went and played pickleball? That's a bad combination. It's a bad combination. I'm, I'm going yeah. to tell you right now, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it really it does. There. It really does highlight how complex the human body is, though. Yeah, I mean, I does. think that there's so many things that we can't explain because they, we can't put A to B and B to C. We just kind of have theories. So I think that really does highlight that uh, quite a bit. I feel like a common story I hear all the time is... You know, like my child ate some food and then they got like a rash around their mouth mm-hmm. and like or like I feel like strawberries for whatever reason, maybe have that happen a lot. But like, is that an allergy, something that's concerned about? Do babies just get rashes on their face from rubbing things on there? Yeah, that's, this is my favorite non-allergy diagnosis. So it's non-allergic food contact dermatitis from irritation on contact with the skin. Um, and this is the number one, you know, sort of way that we undiagnose food allergies. So everybody who comes sees me, who comes to see me, uh, specifically, they have concerns for food allergy. And I undiagnose food allergy in fifty percent of our new patient visits. Uh, awesome. I and I love when they show up because I can spend the time to clarify. And that's probably the number one reason why is you know. And there's a list of foods that can do this, whether it's berries, citrus, cinnamon tomato-based products, sauces, ranch dressing, uh, bananas, all kinds of things that they touch the skin and cause a redness, but otherwise they're fine. That's usually that non-allergic dermatitis that we see. So uh, another question I had was, I, I would imagine that as an adult who has a food allergy that's maybe scary or, or, or semi-scary and then has a child, there's probably a huge fear of like, my child's going to have this and I'm terrified to feed them. 
Is there a genetic component to it? Is it something where you preemptively would want to have that child evaluated before exposing the food? You get where I'm going with that? Yeah, that's a that's a common question that we receive. So uh, to the best of our, our knowledge, there's really no like specific gene that says you're going to inherit one type of food allergy that gets passed on from one generation to the other. That being said, allergic parents tend to have children that are at risk to develop allergies. And we completely appreciate the concern, especially if that parent could have a reaction uh, from accidentally eating that. They, they, they may be hesitant to feed that to their own child. So from a medical standpoint, we generally discourage uh, screening tests uh, before introduction because of those false positives that I talked about. But I've met with enough families um, over the years that I say that oftentimes they need to see that negative result for a comp- to, get, to help build some confidence for them. So I'll often talk about the pitfalls of testing, but still, you know, um, happy to do it as long as we don't, you know, diagnose food allergy based upon the results. And typically what I'll say is if it's negative, will you feel comfortable introducing this at home? Because that shows they're not actually, you know, allergic to it. And oftentimes they say, yes, I say, even if it's elevated, I'm not going to diagnose them as having allergy, but maybe we can feed it to them here in the office for the first time just to make sure everything goes well. And I think that resonates pretty well with most parents. How quickly would you expect to see a response in that scenario? Like say, you know, that that's the situation. And then that kid sitting in your office, how long do you make them wait before you let them go home safely? Yeah, our food challenge is typically, uh, we have parents prepare to be with us for about three to four hours. Uh, and we, ideally in that first hour is when we're actually feeding the entire allotment of food that we want them to eat. Uh, more often than not, we're trying to get to up to about four to six grams of protein, regardless of what food we're feeding. And it's actually relatively boring if nothing happens. You know, I go in the room, uh, I feed a little bit of food, come back 10 minutes later. Uh, if they do fine, I sort of double the amount. We, sort of, we start at a very low amount just to make sure everything goes well. And then we give them up to that whole serving size within the hour. And then they just kind of hang out. And then even if symptoms do occur, it's a very uh, informative and empowering experience because one, we clarify and know for sure that they are allergic. Two, the parents can actually watch their child experience a reaction, see what that looks like so they know exactly what to monitor for in the future. Three, it gives us a better sense of threshold amount because there's a lot of misconceptions about you know, uh, trace amounts and things like that. And there's very few people that actually have true reactions or severe reactions to cross-contamination trace amounts. They do exist and we need to identify them. But for most people, they need to eat you know, a significant portion before they have a reaction. And that can just really help guide management. And then whenever we do need to give treatment, they actually see how fast it works. We typically have to give epinephrine in our office, mm-hmm. oh, maybe 9% of the time. Um, and even then, Every family is kind of thankful because they see how fast it works, how much better it made their child feel. We take away that phobia of having that needle because we have to inject it into the leg to administer the medicine. But there's many, many reasons to pursue a food challenge. They're very safe and they're very empowering. It's the best part of my job. Can you give me the ambiance that's in your office? Because I picture a doctor's office that is like kind of cold and sterile and has all the equipment and stuff like do you have a restaurant? <laughs> like, ha. who's making this food? Are you coming out with like an apron on and a towel over your shoulder and like there's red checkered tablecloths and stuff? Like, walk me through <laughs> yeah. ratatouille action going on. Uh, that's actually a common joke of, you know, we, we have many <laughs> options available and it, we pride ourselves in being a five-star restaurant. So <laughs> but most of the, the centers that do a lot of food challenges, you know, we have a lot of the food in our office. So we have yeah. various forms of peanuts and milk and egg and the common ones. Um, and a lot of times if they have, if it's an unusual allergen or something they have to cook, we have them bring it and we give them instructions on how to do that. Yeah. But one of the, one of the most interesting parts is 
Well, one that I try my best to be as calm as possible. So even when you know I recommend epinephrine, I typically go in the room. I'm not rushing in the room saying, "Oh my God, your child's gonna die." It's yeah. okay. Now here's what's happening inside your child's body. I'm gonna recommend that we give epinephrine because I think it's gonna make them feel better, and we can just kind of halt things where it is, and, and things oh. won't progress. And you know, typically I'm I'm even speaking lower and lower tones than that, uh, just kind of bring down the the drama as much as possible, and and people respond well to that. And then with toddlers, especially who are somewhat reluctant to eat the food um, because of just different taste aversions, or, it's a weird experience. Yeah. It's hard for a three-year-old to come hang out with me uh, in a weird doctor's <laughs> office to eat food that they've never <laughs> eaten before. So we have, uh, you know, it's kind of like Buddy the Elf of, you know, we have lots of you know, candy, uh, <laughs> candy yeah. corn, candy canes, we have syrup, uh, you know, we have jelly. <laughs> we have all kinds of different ways to sort of mask, mask things to make it more palatable. My mom said not to take food from a strange man. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. Yep. It's Dr. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, the looks I get sometimes. It's, it's, it's amazing. But we have fun with it and we anticipate that. And we've had so much experience that we can just, yeah. we can often head this off at the pass and tell parents what to expect during that visit. But uh, we love it. it it's, it's a huge part of what we do. That's fun. So assuming that you, well, do you need to do an oral food test to, to diagnose it? Or are you diagnosing people even without that? No, if you come in with a really good story and you have very elevated skin or blood tests, you, that, you're allergic to that food. Uh, and we sure. talk about management and things like that. Food challenges are really great uh, because a lot of children will outgrow their food allergies as they get older. So it's never, it should never be diagnose somebody and have a nice life. It should be, we'll diagnose you, let's get you through the next 9 to 12 months and then repeat testing. If the testing indicates that you may be developing tolerance, come hang out with us and we'll do the food challenge. Or if we're trying to clarify, uh, and we've had a lot of patients where the story sounds really, really good. And like, yeah, that was, you, that was anaphylaxis and it was probably to this food. We do the skin testing, it's negative. We do the blood testing, it's negative. Come hang out. We do the food challenge. They don't react. I don't know what happened to you that day, but it wasn't because you're allergic to this food. And that can yeah. really help, you know, guide management. So if you do diagnose it, you, you kind of tease this a little bit. Like, so now you've diagnosed a food allergy. What are you doing at that point? Uh, lots of education, tons of education, because if we don't educate and talk about risk um, and management, then people are left to fend for themselves and they're going to go online and read some really scary, um, mm -hmm. outdated information that's going to, you know, put them and cause a lot of anxiety. Um, so we talk about really just focusing on preventing ingestion. And we do that through two main ways. One is by reading labels and two is communicating with food handlers. And there's a lot of nuance involved when you're sending children to school, especially younger, uh, younger children in preschool and daycare settings. But we talk about how to, how to communicate that with all the teachers and the personnel and things like that. And then it's being prepared in case accidental ingestion does occur, leading to anaphylaxis. So we prescribe epinephrine. We talk about uh, the many, many reasons why people don't have their epinephrine with them or they're reluctant to use it. And we sort of head that off at the pass. And then uh, what I like to do also is I, I basically say, I'm sure you're going to go online and go on social media. And if you read any scary stories, please reach out to me. Send me a message through the electronic medical record. Give me a call. I want to be a resource for you. Um, there's a reason why we have two psychologists on our staff. It's because the anxiety that goes along with this diagnosis is very real uh, and it can lead people to avoid very very low risk scenarios like flying on an airplane or going to a playground or going to a baseball game and things like that. Yeah, that's really sad. Well, in true your doctor friend's fashion, kind of like, you know, how how we get a lot of texts and phone calls that are talking about one specific scenario in someone's life. Like, here's my specific scenario. So I have a niece um, who um, is a young girl and she was diagnosed with a cow's milk allergy very young. Um, and my sister just took her back to the allergist not too long ago. We were hoping like maybe she grew out of it, you know, or, or became tolerant to it. Um, and 
it was kind of like, ah, she was told that she still has some reactivity to it. Is that something that you're seeing like in the IgE levels in the blood test? Or like, how do you determine if someone is still like, oh, you still need to avoid this food after years? Yeah. So it's really the size of the test results. So on the skin test, what we're doing on skin testing is we're basically it's liquid allergens and we place Mm -hmm. it on the, usually the back or on the forearm. We gently scratch through the top layer of the skin and we introduce that allergen to those mast cells that are sitting there. Mm -hmm. If those mast cells are, uh, contain that IgE, it unlocks them and they release histamine. Histamine causes hives. So the Mm -hmm. size of the hive, uh, takes 15 minutes to get the test result indicates the likelihood that you're allergic. It does not tell you severity. That's a huge Mm -hmm. misconception. Uh, and that's something that I, really drives me nuts is when people are told that they're deathly allergic based upon the size of the allergy test result. That is not true at all. And then on the blood test, we basically level, we get levels back from 0.1 up to 100. The higher the number indicates, the more likely it is that you're allergic, but again, does not indicate severity. Um, we, I rarely have somebody who has a known food allergy. We rarely, if ever wait until those numbers are completely negative before we do Mm -hmm. the food challenge, because we're going to miss years of opportunity where people can often tolerate that food, uh, despite having low level sensitization. So lots of nuance, but that, then again, that's sort of, you know, that's what I do. This is my sole focus as, you know, subspecialist is I I really understand all the nuance involved in diagnosis and interpretation of test results. Yeah. Is there anything we can do to encourage it to go away or for that matter, prevent it? Yell at ah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Yell at peanuts. So prevention, yes. So this has changed dramatically. Um, you know, 20 years ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics had uh, guidance to say, don't feed any milk to babies until they're one, no eggs till two, no nuts or seafood till three. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, don't eat any of these foods. That wasn't based on good evidence. That was expert mm-hmm. opinion at the time. And it made sense at the time with our with our where the current understanding of allergy um, development lied. Um, but since then, we actually have really good evidence that, sh- that demonstrates consistently the earlier we introduce these allergenic foods into babies' diets, typically around four to six months of age, and keep it in their diet consistently, ideally several times a week, that is the best way to try to prevent allergies from developing in the first place. Uh, it's not 100% effective, uh, but that's the, the recommendations we should be making to every family out there, especially if their child has persistent eczema, because that's their first outward sign that they are on this allergic path. And if we avoid these foods until they're, you know, one and a half or two years of age, we may have missed that window of opportunity where introducing and keeping their diet may prevent it in the first place. So that's really a, the, the one message that we want to send to all parents out there in regards to prevention. Uh, in our last episode together, Dave, we, when we were talking about seasonal allergies um, and like allergic rhinitis and those things, we were talking about allergy shots. Is there a role for allergy shots for, for folks with food allergies? Uh, definitely not allergy shots. Uh, these were being investigated <laughs> like 30, 40 years ago, and those trials were, were halted because there was an unfortunate fatality. But they're starting to, to ramp back up again because um, with, with improved understanding and methodology and things like that. We do have ways of desensitizing, uh, something that's been done in clinical practice for over a decade uh, by a lot of private allergists, and it's become more mainstream in academic centers as well, is called oral immunotherapy. So instead of injecting it into the body, uh, we're actually giving very, very small amounts under very careful supervision uh, on a daily basis. So you take somebody what they're allergic to, you start with very small dosing. Every couple of weeks or so, you increase the amount that they have until you reach this predetermined maintenance dose. And as long as they're receiving that daily dosing, that can increase the amount they need to eat to cause a severe life-threatening reaction. So it kind of gives you that buffer zone that they didn't have prior to the therapy. 
There's a lot that is entailed because you're also introducing risk into the equation because every single time you dose them, they could have an acute allergic reaction. Yeah. It could cause chronic symptoms. The daily regimen is important. They have to be consistent with dosing. And we, we onboard families and let them you know, get them used to this. And then you never truly know if they outgrow the allergy unless you actually stop the therapy, wait a period of time, and then challenge them again. But for most families, they don't care. So what we're doing is we're giving that, that bite-proof protection. It decreases their anxiety, increases their quality of life. For some of these kids, we can actually get them to eat more of that food in their diet as well, mm -hmm. as long as they're getting the therapy. So again, as you've already heard me say multiple times so far, lots of nuance involved here. But yes, yeah. that is sort of the, the path that most people are taking uh, in a proactive way to sort of desensitize. Not a known cure. There is no known cure for food allergy. In a similar vein, just very quickly, uh, drops under the tongue. So sublingual immunotherapy is going to become more mainstream in the, in the coming years. The research looks very, very good, especially for peanut. Less risk for having severe allergic reactions, and you can achieve that similar desensitization. There's a company that's looking at ways to desensitize through the skin, uh, which also looks very promising with uh, decreased risk for side effects. And then there are these medications called biologics that block the IgE antibody that are going to go for FDA approval, hopefully within the next 12 months as a way to kind of offer you that sort of protection from severe reactions, regardless of what food you're actually allergic to. So very, very exciting times in regards to treatment for food allergy. Super cool, for sure. Julie did an awesome job um, earlier kind of bringing up our um, gluten episode. And it, I realized that, it, that I don't want to make the case that gluten and uh, food allergy are the same thing, but there's some analogs here that I want to explore for a second. Can you first go into the difference between allergy and intolerance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So gluten, and it really is the same thing as wheat protein. So there's a lot of people out there that have wheat allergies. I mentioned it's one of the, the more common causes of allergy. So if you have that immediate onset response with hives and swelling and anaphylaxis, that's that IgE allergy. Now, food intolerances do not involve the immune system. Um, so that's more difficulty with digestion. Intolerances, there's no great commercial test that's available. Uh, there are some, you know, some centers have these hydrogen breath tests and things like that, but things like that. But the most common example is lactose intolerance. So lactose is a sugar found in dairy products. Um, and for people with lactose intolerance, they lack the enzymes to digest that. So when you eat things with lactose, the sugar passes through the, the gastrointestinal tract unabsorbed, and it causes bloating, diarrhea, cramping. You don't feel very well. It doesn't happen immediately. It can change over time. It can vary by the amount that you eat, and it should never have those associated hives or skin symptoms and rash and things like that. Um, so oftentimes, you know, we, we use the history to help guide the likelihood of intolerance. And then typically what we'll suggest is if you really think, if we really think that's what's going on, let's do a trial elimination diet. So let's completely remove that food from your diet for, say, two to three weeks. Be as objective as possible. Did your symptoms completely improve? Yes, they did. Okay, eat that food again. Uh, did those symptoms come back after you put that food in your diet? Because a lot of times your symptoms improve, not because of that specific food, but because of other lifestyle modifications that people weren't really thinking about. Uh, this is why the gluten-free food industry is a billion-dollar industry, because people think that gluten is the cause of all their medical problems. They adopt a gluten-free diet, but what they're really doing is actually starting to cut back on a lot of those ultra-processed foods, a lot of those foods that are, you know, heavy in carbohydrates and things like that. And they're also adopting, you know, other regimens uh, focused on improving their sleep hygiene or exercise or, or things like that. Um, so if you do think that you have an intolerance, strict elimination, then put the food back in if the symptoms go away. So continuing the analogy. So when you, what Dr. Fasano did a good job of describing was, is that if people have celiac disease, they should, they can't touch gluten, like, because it, it really leads to long-term consequences. So like you just have to stay away from. So you talked earlier about allergy trace amounts versus like a larger amount. Can you talk about if I'm allergic to peanut butter, like can I 
do I have to make sure the restaurant doesn't have any peanuts in there? That kind of thing. Yeah, so very different from celiac. Celiac, as, as discussed in your episode, is an autoimmune condition. So mm-hmm. the presence of gluten causes the body to attack itself. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's bad news for people with celiac, and we want them to, to avoid that. What we're understanding with IgE food allergy is that um, everybody has their own sort of threshold amount that they would need to be in, uh, ingest to cause a reaction. Uh, airborne reactions are extremely rare. Can they occur? Yes, they can. But they typically occur when that food is being heated on the stovetop. Uh, so for somebody with, say, milk allergy, especially if they also have asthma, if they were to inhale the, uh, the vaporized milk protein into the lungs, it may cause symptoms. Uh, you can see that with people frying fish on the stove as well. But that'd be very unusual for somebody walking into a restaurant where a peanut is being served or their allergen is being eaten by somebody that they're next to. So casual exposure is a very, very unlikely cause of allergic reactions, let alone anaphylaxis. Now, this, this takes a very individualized sort of conversation with every single patient and family to help them understand their own risks. If I have somebody that has a history of severe anaphylaxis after eating very small amounts, I'm not going to advise them you know, to, to expose themselves on purpose to these low-risk scenarios. But then again, there's a lot of people out there that uh, either have never actually eaten the food and they were diagnosed by testing alone, or they've already demonstrated, oh, I had to eat a substantial portion of this and they had relatively mild symptoms, that's when we can have the conversation about these low-risk scenarios uh, like dining at restaurants and uh, cross-contact and things like that. That's great. One last one on the analogy. So as you mentioned, um, gluten, uh, in, uh, excuse me, celiac disease is an autoimmune condition. If people have low exposure to that, it can cause damage to the bowel over time. You've just described a person who maybe has to eat a lot of uh, food to get symptoms is there any long-term consequences to somebody who has a known food allergy but needs a lot to having low amounts? Like, is, is that something that is... Uh, yeah, like subclinical allergy right. causing yes. problems down the road? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, not at all. And here's here's why. Because I just described oral immunotherapy, which is intentionally... <laughs> you're intentionally giving that allergic person subclinical yeah. threshold doses. Now, that is you know highly prescribed. You know, It's a daily therapy that's going to lead to more desensitization. So that's what we can draw upon is our, the extensive research and experience that goes along with that protocol and that treatment where we can you know, confidently say that if you're accidentally exposed to these small amounts, it's not going to cause any hidden damage or anything like that. That's a great distinction. That was a great, great point, Jeremy. I love it. I love it. What, what, do you, what should you do? I'm pivoting a little bit because we've kind of touched on this briefly, but I think listeners would, would want guidance from a certified allergist, immunologist. What if you're worried that someone near you is having an allergic reaction to food. Maybe it's the first time they've ever had that. Like, what should you do? Should you drive them to the ER immediately? Should you call it like, walk me through what you would recommend? Yeah. Well, ideally, if that person is is known to be allergic, hopefully they sure. already have their medications with them. And if so, then I would administer their medications. Uh, so, you know, epinephrine is a, is a great treatment that we should give anybody that's having, you know, an acute severe life or, you know, acute severe allergic reaction. We don't need to wait until their airways closing shut. Uh, it's very safe. You're not going to hurt them. And in fact, it's going to make them feel better. So when in doubt, use the epinephrine. If it's somebody that has no known history of allergies, well, it's interesting because now there's these stock epinephrine laws that are Mm. present in almost every state. Uh, They're mostly voluntary. There's only a few that are mandatory where it allows schools uh, and certain public venues to actually have epinephrine auto-injectors available uh, because there's a significant portion of people that have their first reaction while they're at school, Um, you know, and they've never been diagnosed with food allergy before. So epinephrine, it's so safe and so, so useful that it's widely available or should be widely available for anybody to use in case somebody is having an allergic reaction. So otherwise it would be, yeah, seek medical attention uh, as fast as possible. Yeah. 
Great answer. Do the antihistamines play a role, not for anaphylaxis, but for the other symptoms? Yes, exactly as you said, not for anaphylaxis. So anaphylaxis, epinephrine. If you're not mm-hmm. sure about epinephrine, give epinephrine. If you've already given epinephrine and they're still having symptoms, give, give epinephrine again. Uh, that's the treatment of choice. But antihistamines can be very helpful for more of the skin symptoms. So it can really help combat the histamine that's being released in the skin, causing lots of you know, uh, uncomfortable itching and hives and, and swelling and things like that. Uh, but that should only be given after the epinephrine, unless that's the only symptom. So for a lot of folks out there with food allergy, their only symptom is going to be they get hives on their skin. Then their treatment should be antihistamines. And we really want to avoid using old first-generation antihistamines like Benadryl because we have such better options available. So second-generation antihistamines like cetirizine, infexofenadine, even loratadine, they work faster, they last four times as long, and they don't have the nasty side effects that are associated with those older antihistamines. Yeah, I feel like Benadryl is it's still, like my, even my gut reaction to, <laughs> to someone who might be having a, a more mild food allergy is to, is to say Benadryl, but I love to hear that the newer generation antihistamines work just as well, sounds like better. Yeah, better. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I actually, I proactively at have families, I, I tell them, do me a favor, go home and throw all that Benadryl away. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of the, a lot of the reasons that it was used in the first place are simply they weren't backed by evidence and we have better options available. So just thoughtful use of, of the treatments that we use, I think is really important. Yeah. You also say, go take an Allegra and people look at you weird. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> again, we haven't gotten to the point where everybody knows the other brand names like Zyrtec and Allegra and Claritin and all the other ones, as right. well as Benadryl. Benadryl has a nice hold on that market. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I, so I've, this has been my, I have many soapboxes. I've been on this soapbox for about seven years and there's mm-hmm. great guidance out there from our professional organizations and just walking through the evidence. Um, but Benadryl was first to market, right? It's been like 85 years. Well, guess what? Zyrtec's been around for 40 years. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, it's just, you get first to market. So that's the one that everybody's familiar with. Yeah. Um, I would love to go into debunking myths and misinformation. We've actually done quite a bit already organically in this episode. And I just love, I feel like this is where Dr. Dave shines. Can I, uh, can I stop? Can I do something yeah. else before we do myths and misinformation? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Dave, we teased in the opener that we thought, like, I kind of feel like food allergies seem more common than they um, have felt like ever. Is that a true phenomena or is that just because people are talking about it more? Can you comment on that? You promised me you wouldn't ask that question. I'm just... <laughs> That's also one of my myths and misinformation, Jeremy. Oh my gosh. So no, this, this is the number one question I get every yeah. presentation I give. Uh, and then even at like, you know, barbecues, like, oh, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So when I say I'm a, I'm a pediatric allergist, uh, there's almost always a pause. And then it's either mm-hmm. going to be, why does everybody have peanut allergy now? Or it's going to be, um, can I show you my rash? <laughs> it's like, it never, it never fails. Gross. Um, Okay, so yes, the, we are seeing an increased prevalence of food allergies, uh, and, and it and it varies, as I mentioned before. So rates of food allergy are probably highest uh, in Australia, uh, in the United States, in North America, compared to uh, you know places like India and Africa and third world countries and, and places like that. Um, it's partly because. Um, we think that there's impacts such as the the hygiene hypothesis and we're having more people develop allergies in general. Uh, it's also probably due to increased awareness and the way that it's actually being studied and captured and, and things like that. Uh, it's unfortunate because it's really hard to do very accurate prevalence studies for food allergy unless you actually challenge everybody. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the data that we go by are based upon surveys. So that's, you know, it's the best proxy that we can have. Um, but yeah, we don't really understand why there's no single cause. I can tell you that. 
Uh, we may it may have been delayed introduction, may have contributed to that uh, because, as I mentioned before, for decades we've been telling parents not to give these foods, and, and you know the earlier we give it and keep in the diet, that may be better at preventing allergy. Um, but yeah, definitely no single reason why. And I, what I can tell you for sure is that it's nothing in mom's diet. So uh, there's a lot of guilt out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty much every single mother I've met of a, of a child with food allergies uh, is running through their mind. Is it because of something I ate or didn't eat when I was pregnant or breastfeeding? Oh, the right. answer is no. I promise you it is not your fault. That's powerful. I'm, I'm glad to, that we're able to put that in the episode. That's a power, yeah. powerful statement. Another perception that I have, maybe this is a myth or misinformation, but another perception that I feel like I have is that when when a, a child has food allergies, it seems like there's a lot of them that have just like a list of six of them. Mm. You know, it's, it's not as if you have this spread out, like there's 12 kids in the class and they all have one food allergy. It seems like there's like a couple kids and they all have multiple. Is that, a, first of all, an accurate perception? And is there a reason behind that? Yeah, th- no, those children exist, but it's unfortunate because most of them probably aren't allergic to all those foods. I, mm. I, I serve as a second, third, fourth opinion for many families and for almost all of them, I can't promise everybody out there, but for almost all of them, we can actually clarify and get several of those foods back in the diet. And the reason why is because they were misdiagnosed by the overuse of these testing that I talked about before. They had panel testing done. They were told to take food out of their diet, even though they were tolerating it. Uh, It really is rampant in regards to the misdiagnosis of food allergies. So that's the most important thing we can do is clarify the diagnosis. I think that's so important to 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 clarify, Jeremy, too, because like we talked about in the beginning in the intro and like what Dr. Fasano was talking about, like it's super stressful to be to have to cut a, a food out of your diet and it's expensive and it's inconvenient and probably anxiety inducing. So, Dave, I, I love that, you, you know, it seems like your push is, look, let's let's really clarify this. Let's make sure that you actually have a true reaction to this, even though your blood test may say that you have some IgE response to it. That doesn't mean that you can't have eggs. Eggs are awesome. Enjoy them, you know, and you don't have to be worried every time that you're at a bake sale, you know? So I just, I think that's so cool for, for you to clarify that it's not benign to have to cut food out of your diet. It's not. It's it's stressful and hard. And if we don't have to do that for our health, then let's not do that. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, we've gotten through most of my myths and misinformation, but I have a couple more. And they happened organically. So thank you, Jeremy. This actually worked out fantastically. But it was funny. The way that I was going to talk about how you brought it up was the quote, and I have I to have like my old coot voice to do this, is like, back in my day, people didn't have all these food allergies. Everyone's a wimp now. Eat your peanuts and you'll be fine. <laughs> so we've debunked that one already. I just wanted to do my coot voice. Um, how about uh, peanut is the most common food allergy in kids? That is incorrect. It's actually milk and egg. Um, so it depends on what age you're looking at as, so in, in infants and young toddlers, it's milk and egg. Uh, and then as children get a little bit older, it's probably peanuts and tree nuts, but yeah, nope. And peanuts also not the most severe. I don't know if you were going to ask that if if you did. That was my next one. And it was going to be fine. Peanut allergy is definitely the most dangerous though. I'm glad you brought that up because I would not have thought of that on my own. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, that this, so that's not not any of this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not true either. So. People yeah. absolutely can have very severe allergic reactions to other foods, uh, milk and sesame, egg, mm-hmm. and, and really, you know, anything that can cause a food allergy could potentially cause a more severe reaction. Uh, peanuts do tend to be associated. So, um, you know, there's a higher percentage of people that have severe reactions that mm-hmm. is going to be to peanuts. Uh, but by no means is that is that the only one we, that we worry about. Gotcha. Let, can we build on nuts for a second? Tree nuts versus peanuts versus all the other nuts. It makes me feel nuts. Can you explain that? <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, so the only thing that peanuts and tree nuts share are the letters N, U, and T. Um, so peanuts uh, are legumes. Yeah. They, yeah. They, thanks. Uh, so peanuts are legumes. They grow in the ground. You harvest them by pulling them out of the ground. Tree mm. nuts grow on trees. Uh, there's actually no true cl- cross reactivity. Now, there's a certain uh, percentage of people that are allergic to both, and that's just because they're probably highly allergic individuals, and those are two mm. of the more common causes of food allergy. But it's not right. like one cause or the other. Coconut is a fruit, despite what the FDA says. It drives me nuts. Coconut is a fruit. It does not cross-react to tree nuts. Uh, pine nuts are a seed. It doesn't cross-react to tree nuts. Uh, water chestnuts are a root vegetable. So, you know, there's, we, we need to clarify and, and make sure that people understand, um, you know, what's what. That's smart. I love that. I was going to bring that up, coconut, but you beat me to it. Gosh, oh, man. It's I'm like just... you're the expert in this. It's like you've talked about this before. I am out um, to get you. I'm trying to yeah, ruin your whole podcast. I'm loving it. I'm, I welcome it. <laughs> I, prove me wrong, Dave. Um, how about food packaging that says might contain or process in the same facility as is probably fine for me to eat if I'm allergic to that thing? Yeah, this is where the nuance comes into play. Yeah. So the the may contains, um, whether it's, you know, and I have a slide that I use in my presentation. So I have like, I think, 16 examples of the different wording. Shared equipment, process, same facility, your truck driver dreamt about Mr. Peanut last night, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the unfortunate thing is these these labels aren't regulated, so they don't actually convey meaning about do they actually mm-hmm. contain allergen? Do they contain enough allergen to cause a reaction? We're learning more and more. Going back to what I talked about before with individual thresholds, this is really is an individual conversation, shared decision-making with one's own allergist about what's your risk. Um, in general, those labels do not convey risk, and, and um, most people don't have reactions to those types of labeling. Whereas if it says contains, we absolutely need to avoid that because uh, that's telling you that you know by law that it, it contains those allergens that are on there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an area of nuance, and I encourage everybody to have that individualized conversation with one's own allergist. Nice. Um, how about every school has an EpiPen? Thanks, Obama. So my kid with a severe food allergy doesn't need their own EpiPen. Why, why'd you throw Obama in there? <laughs> because it was his 2013 law that he's, well, during the oh, Obama administration. All right. Yeah, all right. no. <laughs> we, oh, we love Barack Obama. He's, he's from Illinois. Well, you know, to, you know Chicago <laughs> and Illinois. It's fine. Yeah. So um, we sort of touched upon this when talking about epinephrine, but um, most yeah. states, it's a voluntary law. Uh, yeah. So no, we cannot count on, on your child's school having that available. If your child has been prescribed epinephrine, please send it an up-to-date prescription and a written allergy action plan with them to school every single year and have that conversation with their teacher, the school nurse, and the personnel. Uh, it's nice that the schools that actually do have them, uh, it's great to have that as a backup, uh, but really it shouldn't be for those with known food allergies. It should be for those that you know we don't know about yet uh, that could have a reaction there. Or unfortunately, there are people that don't have their medication with them when they need it. So yeah, don't trust that uh, in, in you know, being the case. I've heard that we should prescribe as prescribers, like to have the pharmacy dispense two at a time. Uh, for people or like to have people have more than one in their possession. Would you agree with that, Dr. Dave? Yeah, that's interesting. So we're starting Mm -hmm. to see more nuance in regards to anaphylaxis management. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, about 10% of people will, who have anaphylaxis will require a second dose. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's assuming that everybody with food allergies is going to have anaphylaxis at the time their prescription is. So we also have to take into account the cost that's associated with these. So this was these were big headlines several years ago where yeah. manufacturers of the epinephrine auto-injectors had class action lawsuits because they're charging hundreds of dollars. So, you know, are, can we, you know, tell every family that to spend hundreds of dollars every year to get, you know, as many epinephrine auto-injectors as they can when the reality is, you know, they may not actually need them. Uh, but then again, you have to balance that because as I mentioned, 10% of people do need that second dose if they yeah. experience a, a reaction. So 
it really goes down to, again, that shared decision-making and risk and things like that. Now, the, the what's really controversial, and I'm actually going to talk about this in an upcoming presentation, are mm. some of the data and discussions surrounding, does everybody with food allergy actually need epinephrine in the first place, let sure. alone two? Uh, that's highly nuanced and very controversial. But um, no, in general, we do want people to have uh, two devices at least prescribed and then ideally with them uh, just in case they need it. How how expired is expired? Mm-hmm. They're I'm typically- sure that comes up. There's no way that hasn't come up in the came up in the office of like, well, it said it expired like three months ago. Can I still use it? So the studies show that they're typically viable for up to two years or so afterwards. Um, okay. So epinephrine is relatively stable. We sure. do want to be very cautious with extremes of temperature, uh, mm-hmm. especially you know freezing, thawing, or if it gets overheated. So we never want to leave them in the glove compartment of the car. Uh, we want to keep it you know as close to sort of room temperature uh, as as possible. Um, but yeah, I I tell people all the time like you know save your expired auto injectors. You typically need to have a new prescription for schools and daycares and stuff like that. But keep the old ones as backup. Uh, because they're still good for a couple of years and it's not going to cause any harm. That's for sure. Got it. Um, I think that's all my myths and, and, uh, misinformation. Jeremy, do you have anything else? Burning? No, I, I'm in a very good place. I learned a ton. Me too. How about you, Dr. Dave? Do you have any other common things that you hear that you're like, no, nah, dude, that, that ain't right. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of outdated information. What the one thing I, I guess the message I want to say to everybody, especially healthcare professionals, of you know what we once thought to be true regarding food allergy has changed dramatically. I don't have the same conversation now that I had three five years ago, and it's going to change next year and the year after that. This is a constantly evolving area of understanding and management. So um, there, there's a lot of hope on the horizon. Yes, for those who have legitimate food allergies, we absolutely need to make sure we have the proper diagnosis, teach them the management skills that they need, but take a very proactive, positive way of managing it. It doesn't have to be a life-altering diagnosis. There's lots of good positive examples. And for those who don't have that true food allergy, we want to identify them as well uh, and let them know why it's actually safe to keep that in their diet. And for all those out there that say they have a food allergy when they go to the restaurant because it's actually more of a dietary preference or you just don't like the taste of mushrooms, please stop doing that. You're making life, you're making life much, much more difficult for those with legitimate food allergies. Restaurants have to go through extensive uh, steps to ensure the safety uh, for their, for their um, uh, customers who have legitimate food allergies. So it's okay to say, I don't really like mushrooms. Can we make sure that's not part of my meal? You don't need to say that you actually have an allergy because that's not helping anybody. Smart. Sorry, I had to get that part in. That's a <laughs> no, be- it, that was but... beautiful. It was beautiful. Like again, standing ovation through a podcast. <laughs> yum yum. Um, well, you kind of touched on a lot of the things that you're excited about or that are cool on the horizon regarding food allergy prevention and treatment. Anything else that we didn't mention? Lots of cool stuff with the microbiome. It's going to take a mm. while to truly understand who, what, when, where, how, and why. Um, and there are actually some some really interesting startups looking at ways to use this new mRNA technology. So mm-hmm. it's hopefully you, you see that you can sense the excitement in my voice. Like th- we're going to have multiple viable options for people with yeah. food allergy in the next 10, 10 years, if not if not sooner. So these are very exciting times. Uh, as you know, all that stuff kind of comes to fruition. I'd love to come back and, and chat about it. Uh, but yeah, uh, don't give up hope. That's for sure. That's so rad. We actually are going to have Dr. Fasano back on. Uh, I can't remember, Jeremy, in the next month or two, um, talking about the microbiome. So I would love, I, I would love to have a, a conversation with you about it as well. Um, do you have any recommendations for resources for folks who want to learn more about food allergies? 
Uh, I recommend sticking with the professional organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so here in the United States, we have the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Uh, there's great groups in Canada and there's a European society. So stick with the professional uh, organizations. There's also some good advocacy organizations as well that have good information. They typically have you know, medical advisors and scientific advisors. And just be really careful what you hear on social media. A lot of the times these are you know, think about everything we just talked about today. So imagine those people out there that have been misdiagnosed and they truly have been led to believe that they have 20 food allergies. And then they go on Facebook or Instagram and they're telling the world how, how difficult it is. And I look at them and I say, you probably aren't actually allergic to those things. So just be cautious when you hear the stories of others, because we don't know one, if they're actually true, even if they are true, there's no way to know if that actually applies to you or your child, uh, regardless of their situation. So just be cautious. If you read some scary stuff, then, you know, put your phone away for a bit and talk to your allergist and see if it actually applies to you. Love it. How can people reach you, Dr. Dave? I know we mentioned your handle. We'll put all this stuff in the in the show notes. But I, I would love to, if you're not comfortable making a big, big plug for your, um, your social media posts, because I think that they do exactly what you've accomplished here on this episode today, which is really clarifying the diagnosis, debunking things. So um, yeah, tell people how they can, how can they can get more information about you and what you do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. So my phone number is, oh, wait, <laughs> <no more>. <laughs> <laughs> insert Jeremy's phone number here. Yeah. <laughs> we have the doc line. You could always call and leave a message for us and we could pass it along to Dr. Dave. So I'm, I'm most active on Instagram these days, but you can yeah. also find me on Twitter and the new threads. Who knows what that will lead to? Yeah. Uh, same, uh... same account handle on all of them, at AllergyKidsDoc. Uh, I, can't, uh, I can't offer any individual medical advice, unfortunately, yes. so I can't tell you exactly what to make of lab results and stuff like that. Um, but I try my best to put out good evidence-based content and offer perspectives. So I appreciate that. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, so testing alone doesn't make the diagnosis. Maybe you can be undiagnosed. Maybe go see an allergist to clarify your diagnosis and listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Music